You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Most of the time, in many Christian churches, Sunday morning is a time where we just kind of try to whip up the sentiment and get everybody motivated to give more and to be a little more active and a little more of this and a little more of that and to believe in their own believing is what happens often. And in a large swath of uh, Christianity in the United States now, um, you just can't show any weaknesses or any doubts or any concerns or any questions. And any time that you have any of those types of concerns or things and you'd bring them up, people would go like, oh, and they just take a step back. I don't know, because it might be contagious or something. I don't know. People almost feel like if you've got a doubt or if you've got anxiety or if you're dealing with sadness or grief, and people, I think, in this congregation even know when someone enters a time of grief because of a loss of a loved one, um, so often a lot, even we struggle being with people in that. We don't know, well, I don't know what to say. You don't have to say anything. Just be with them, okay? Just be with them. So we're going, in a sense, in this series where many churches don't go or have gone before. The story today from the New Testament ain't a big story in one sense. Maybe it's a familiar story for you. It's a story about Mary and Martha and Jesus coming over to their house. And you might, well, it's not my, hey, it's a story, though, that's filled with a lot of tension, by the way. And um, what you find out, though, here's the reality It's not the big events in your life that actually form you and shape you. They don't happen often enough. They reveal what's been formed and shaping you by all the little events that have gone on in your life, all the ordinary things. It's actually not the unique, but the ordinary and everyday that makes a difference. It's not the spectacular, but the mundane. It's not the public, but it's those private things where God is doing his greatest work in forming you and shaping in you and creating in you, in a sense, a masterpiece over time. It's the time that Joseph was in prison and those dull years that grew into him the character of humility and wisdom. It's a time in the wilderness when Moses was cast out of Egypt and he was just tending sheep for years upon years. And through that then finally, God ultimately brought him to be able to tend the people of God and shepherd the children of Israel. It's actually the time when Paul was stuck after his conversion in Damascus, and he was stuck for almost 10 years in Tarsus before Barnabas brought him along. Those are the times, those ordinary times of studying scripture, of reflecting on what God is doing, and on, in a sense, grinding us down into humility. That's where God does his greatest work. So we're going to read about a basic story, an ordinary day in some ways, where Jesus enters into a home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and see two basic choices that happen with the two different women in this story. One where anxiety takes over and kind of runs the show in Martha, and the other where all the distractions of what could have happened are removed out of the way and through Mary she has a focus. 
So let's read that story. It's in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So from this ordinary story here, pretty short to the point, we're going to learn three different points. First of all, how Martha is a case study in anxiety, how Mary is a model of discipleship, and how Jesus is a savior for all. But first, Martha being a case study in anxiety, and you might go like, wait a minute, I've heard this story many times. And when I've heard it, it's really, you know, the, the, have you heard this story before? And what's mostly the, the emphasis on usually? You can serve the Lord in these two different ways. You know, you've got the personality of Martha, kind of the leader, the type A, and you've got the type B, kind of slacker, named uh, Mary. No, you've never heard that kind of talk. And then they get into, they jump off, they use, I think the text is often used, and I've probably done it too, as a springboard. You just, that's how Herman, uh, well, that's how people sometimes use the Bible. It's like, oh, this is a story now I get to talk about. And you just jump off of it and go in a different direction. And the direction that is often used in this text is about how there are different personality types and how you just get to know your personality type and how God can use you and serve you. Uh, you can serve God through that person. It has nothing to do with this text. That's called eisegesis. I don't know if you've ever heard of that term before. It's uh, Greek. Yeah, I know. Uh, you'll get a, quite a bit of Greek in this sermon, by the way. Sorry. But that's the original language that you know, the Luke's gospel was written in. Eisegesis means you're reading into the text what you want to see there. And the 20th, 21st century human beings read all the psychological stuff into it about personality types and how everybody's a little different and it's okay. And that is not what this text is about. Sorry. And by the way, I'm much more of like, uh, if you wanted to go that route, Martha, you know, in charge, running the house. Um, you could tell that because she invites, it says Jesus was invited into her house. She invited him to, so she's kind of that type. You could kind of get a little of that. I'm much more of a Martha than I am a Mary. And I'm not gonna be, you know, we're going to see how Martha's got an issue. She's a case study in anxiety. And why do I say that? Because Jesus did. That's good enough for me. He said this, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And that word anxious is miramnao in Greek. And miramnao means to be worried or anxious. Um, and it also kind of describes what anxiety is like. It's being divided. Have you ever felt like with anxiety, it's like, oh, all this stuff going on? Or being pulled apart and going in different directions. Boy, doesn't that describe anxiety sometimes, right? It's used in numerous passages. The same word is used elsewhere, like in Philippians 4, one of, um, you know, probably the, uh, the 
the chief uh, verse about anxiety that we think of. Do not be miramnao, that is, anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and thanks supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uses miramnao numerous times where he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? And somehow, though, I've heard too many sermons where Martha's attitude towards making a good dinner for Jesus and hosting this is all okay, just as long as you don't overdo it. No, this is about anxiety. And you might go, well, of course, I'd be anxious too. I mean, Jesus is coming to your house. You want everything to just be perfect. You want everything just so. She wants everything just the right way. I get it. I get it too much. But anxiety is running that show. That's behind any, quote, perfect, I just have to have it just go just so. It's much more about my being in control and having my expectations met, which makes me more anxious when things don't go just so. So how does anxiety exhibit itself in this story? It's not just that Jesus says you're anxious. He also says, the text says, she was distracted. Anxiety actually distracts you from what's really important. Have you ever noticed that anxiety in your life? It's like all of a sudden you can't focus. Luke chapter 10 says, Martha was distracted with much serving. And now again, that Greek word there is perispao, and it means to be drawn away, to be deeply troubled, to be divided, to be distracted. It's what's called a hapax legomena. Can you say that three times fast? Hapax legomena. It's a, yeah, it's a one time, the only place in all of the New Testament this word comes up. Yeah. And it comes up for Martha. Anxiety draws you away. It distracts you from what's really important. It gets you off track time and again. You know, I've seen that work in my life. Um, when all of a sudden, and, and I think it's also a good way to say, hmm, maybe I'm anxious when I'm so distracted. In other words, I can kind of test my anxiety level by my level of distraction how easily I am like all over the charts. And when I find myself distracted, I think a very important thing for me to do is to say, okay, Lord, where's my anxiety level right now? How am I anxious? You know what's amazing too? When you just actually admit that you're anxious, how it starts to already unwind just by noticing that you're anxious, you kind of step, oh, I guess I'm anxious. It drops just a level like that. So anxiety distracts. We also see right here in this text, anxiety causes what I say is inner turmoil or confusion because Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And that Greek word here is thorobeo, 
which means to be in tumult or thrown into confusion. Just think about a storm, a tempest. Martha may have looked like her act was together on the outside. You know how we talk about a duck on the, on the surface, very smooth, underneath, paddling away. That's Martha. On the outside, she's looking great, but inside, she's got this tumult going on inside, a storm that's raging around, as this word says, and Jesus saw it right away, just by how active she was, how she was trying to, quote, be in control, which means she was out of control. Have you ever noticed that, too? Oh, I just got to be in control. You're out of control when you have to be in control. Boy, the human condition, it's amazing. So she was, in a sense, like a little dinghy in a hurricane with Jesus over at her house. And Jesus, in essence, is saying, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. You've got so many things going on, Martha. Why? And all of these things that you've got going on, how you just have to have it your way right now in this household, Martha, they're all non-negotiable. You've just set it down. You've said, this is the way it's got to be. I am serving Jesus. I want to make sure it's all going just perfectly. Why? But who is that about? What is that about? Only one thing is needed. Mary's doing that. Mary's doing that. Why do you have to have so many things? Because you decided you have to have so many things. So when you're feeling inner turmoil, when you see all these kind of conflicting goals and you feel like this, just ask, why are you so anxious? What is it that you're expecting? Why are your desires set in such a way that you have to have it just so. And who's that all about? And finally, I think this may be the most obvious in one sense, but a little subtle too. Anxiety actually makes you irritable. Now you could just ask my wife about that. <laughs> and, and for me, it's when I'm, I get hangry. Do you know what that is? You get that, you know? I make those Snickers commercials look kind of, you know, funny. But uh, I, when I'm hangry, when I'm basically hungry, when I want something and I think things are, and, and then all of a sudden, they, it's really about anxiety. It's about anxiety. Here we notice, this is what Martha says. She went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, notice, now if, if uh, Jesus is here, and Mary is sitting at his feet. Martha's in the kitchen, which, I mean, it's only like a two-room house, okay? So it's not huge. Martha comes out and then speaks to Jesus about Mary. Do you get that? <laughs> That's called a triangulation. It's like she can't speak directly to Mary. Mary, can you help me? She has to get Jesus involved and try to get him on her side. You know, it's just, oh, the anxiety. And boy, how irritable. Notice she says, she even accuses Jesus, not just Mary of being a slacker, but she accuses Jesus, don't you care? Wow. She is suspicious of the Son of God himself. And all of this because she's upset 
that her way isn't going and that Jesus is not helping her get her way about the way this dinner is supposed to go. Now, I'll tell you, this is quite and can be quite an indictment. It's, it's a real check for me as well as a pastor. If I look over the years of ministry I've had from Louisiana to California, Alabama, and Florida, how much of it, you know, like Martha's thing, I'm doing all this, I'm doing all these things because I, need, I just, and how much of what we do in ministry is really for Jesus and how much of it is just for my ego to look good in front of Jesus? Do you understand what I'm saying? We got a lot of buildings in this world that are built in the name of Jesus. And a lot of ministries and a lot of driven pastors driving people to do things in the, for Jesus. But I have a feeling if we really sit down and look at our anxiety and what's going on, uh, we're not doing it for him. And if Martha was actually doing all this for him, then she wouldn't have been upset. Because Jesus didn't want this. He didn't come to their house for a five-course meal. He didn't come to their house for, um, a, a, for, for the wonderful hospitality. He came to their house for friendship. He came to their house to spend time with Mary and Martha, and he was not spending any time with Martha because she was busy doing other stuff. So let's contrast now Mary to this. And I say she is a model of discipleship. Luke writes this. This is what he says, right? And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. What does that mean, that she sat at his feet? What does it mean to sit at a rabbi's feet in the first century? Do you get what I'm getting at here? So, for instance, in the book of Acts, when um, the early church started, there were some uh, members of the church that willingly went out and sold property they owned. And it says in the text that they came to the apostles and took the money they got from the sale of that land and placed it at the apostles' feet. It's a weird place to put money, isn't it? But what that really means, it's a way, it's an expression, it's a Hebraism of when you put something at someone's feet, you are basically submitting to their authority. You are basically saying, this is now at your disposal. This money is no longer mine. This is for the apostles to decide what to do. And when Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, she's basically saying, Lord, I'm not my own anymore. At this moment in time, I am under your authority, I'm going to listen to you, and I am at your disposal. You talk about serving. Which one served? Mary had her, her, Mary was at Jesus' disposal. That's a servant. Martha, <laughs> she was, quote, serving, but she was running her agenda. Now, Kenneth Bailey, he's a... Um, he has passed away. So many of the people I like to read sometimes are dead. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever noticed. But um, he was a scholar, lived in the Middle East for 40 years among the Palestinians and um, other peasant people. And he has learned all sorts of things. And one of the things that he realized is that when Martha was uh, upset with Mary, part of the reason might have been is that fact that when you sit at a rabbi's feet, 
you are saying, I want to be your disciple. And in that day and age, by the way, women were not disciples of rabbis, only men, but Jesus had women disciples. He had women disciples who funded his ministry, we find out in Luke. He had women disciples who served, like Martha, but he also had women disciples who actually listened and learned from Jesus. And this is how Jesus himself tells Martha about Mary. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. And you might think listening to a rabbi is not that important or listening to Jesus. Do you realize there's something so amazing, kind of mind-blowing about Mary in this instance? For in Mark 14, there's another story about Mary. It also occurs in the Gospel of John. And that is... uh, Jesus, Jesus is in a house again, and Mary again is at his feet. But this time what she is doing is she is anointing his feet with very expensive perfume. And this became a scandal to the rest of his disciples, and they said, what? <laughs> that money, I mean, that was worth like a year. Salary, why in the world is she doing that? That's such a waste. <laughs> That's how much they understood about Jesus, right? And, um, they sh- and, and Jesus responds to that. And he says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And I truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Do you realize that Mary is the only one? The only one. And all of the people around Jesus who understood what was going on. She's the only one that knew that he was going to die on the cross. Now, the disciples had heard it three times, at least, in the Gospels. Jesus was very plain with them about that. He explained to them that he was going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to be betrayed into the hands of of men. He was going to be crucified and rise from the dead. And they cannot, they heard it and they could, did not listen. It went right through their brains. And all they could talk about, and you can look this up in the Gospels, is who's the greatest among them? Well, I'm number one. I want to be on his right side. And they just complain. They are totally lost. They can't get it into their minds, what Jesus said plainly, because they weren't listening. Mary listened. And she not only anoints his body, she's the only one who anoints his body. Because by the time the women come to the tomb on Easter Sunday, he's already risen from the dead. No one else but Mary. And Jesus says, this, what she is doing right now, will be spoken of in memory of her for the rest of the world to know. You want to have greatness? That's greatness. That's greatness. She listened She was at Jesus' feet. She was the only one. Look, I still get anxious a lot. I have anxiety, and all my busyness, and so often some of my plans, they're all just distractions trying to avoid me really looking and saying, John, why are you so anxious? But when I sit at Jesus' feet, 
when I open his word and rest and listen. And boy, that can be hard work to just get all the noise, stop all the chatter, the self-talk going on. But when I listen, I can hear his plans. And my anxiety unwinds by listening to the love of God and Jesus Christ. And one of the great things we see in this passage and throughout the scriptures is that Jesus is the Savior of all, our third point. You know, that's what's amazing about this text. So in Mark chapter 10, how it started, when you, when you really look at it, it's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? It says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So do you, you see the change from plural to singular here? So they, the disciples and Jesus, are on their way. And then Jesus decides to leave the disciples behind. He goes specifically into this village to the house of Martha and Mary. And Martha, yes, welcomes them into her house. She's kind of the one in charge. But he comes in. So he deliberately went out of his way. He leaves the other disciples behind just to seek fellowship with Mary and Martha. And when all of this hubbub is going on in the house and Martha wants to just have this perfect meal and this banquet and all this stuff, Jesus does correct her, but not in a way that's harsh, not in a matter-of-fact, not in an for-your-information way, but in a very caring and loving way. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Martha, Martha. That's a Hebraism, by the way, to repeat a word a second time. It's an intensification anytime you find it in the Old Testament. And specifically, when you intensify it that way, when you use a personal name, means deep amount of affection. The best example probably is when King David, who had a son named Absalom, who actually rebelled against him. He loved his son. And when David hears about this rebellion, you know, this total revolt and insurrection in his own kingdom and he flees off into the wilderness and he comes back he finds out he hears the news that his son Absalom has been killed you know what he responds he says Absalom Absalom my son he is grieving deeply for Absalom I think it even becomes the title of a uh, Faulkner novel that phrase Absalom Absalom Jesus himself, when he's toward the end of his public ministry and he walks outside of Jerusalem and he looks at the city, he cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's weeping over the city. It's a loving plea. It's not, it's not an indictment. And for Martha, I could just see the love in his eyes and a tear coming from his eyes too as he cries out to her and goes, Martha, Martha, 
Just sit down. Don't just do something. Sit here. I didn't come for a banquet. I came for you. So one other gut-wrenching, aching time that Jesus repeats a name. And that happens in Mark chapter 15 at the ninth hour that he is on the cross. He cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the greatest grief, in the midst of the greatest anxiety and frustrations and hurt and anger and, and uh, that he sees uh, the crowds against him when he would be forsaken and crushed in the midst of all this, something completely out of his foreign to anything that Jesus has ever known that his father would be far from him. He cries out, my God, my God, wanting in the midst of the turbulence of this sin, his father to be there. And yet in the midst of this hellish chaos, called the cross, Jesus focused on the one thing needful. And that is his father, and he still, after this in the Gospels, cries out, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. So Jesus takes our anxiety, and he gives us his peace. So when I'm anxious, I don't need a lecture. You don't either. But you may need Jesus to just say your name, to recall his compassion for you with a tear in your eye saying, Kathy, Kathy, I'm sorry, you're in the front row. All I, you know, all I want you is to be close to me. I just want you, nothing else. I don't need anything else, okay? Let it all go, just listen, just Hear me out. And it's amazing how anxiety unwinds when I sit at the feet of Jesus. I think that's why Paul, when he actually, um, he isn't giving us a command at the end of Philippians. I used this passage before. It's really an invitation. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. Thank you that you, enter in, that you want to be with us. That you aren't looking for stuff from us. It's not the work that we can do for you. You're just seeking us out as you sought out Martha and Mary and their fellowship. Thank you for this time. You know how anxious this world is. You know how filled with chaos we can be. You know how irritable we can get because we are so anxious. We don't even recognize it in ourselves how much we need to just sit at your feet and listen to you, Lord. And when we do, Lord, it's just amazing what you do. It's amazing, Lord, what you give. We pray, Lord, that... Uh, here, everyone here today, I just pray that they have heard you, Lord Jesus, not anything else. And that they see your love in your eyes from that cross, through that empty tomb, Lord, calling us to just sit 
and to be with you and to allow you to unwind our anxieties, to cast all our cares upon you because you do care for us. Lord, you're not saying this world is not filled with trouble or tribulation, but that you have overcome it all and your love conquers all and your perfect love casts out our fear. And that's what we need today, Lord. We need you. You and all your goodness and grace, you and all your truth and beauty. Lord, this week we ask you give us times. Well, you do. You've already given us the time, Lord, that you would that we would take the time with you. That like Mary, we get rid of all the distractions for for moments to be with you in your word, to listen to you deeply and to have you speak to our hearts and lives, your beauty and your glory and your grace and your promises. Lord God, we do lift up to you cares and concerns within this congregation, within the family of Thrive. Some are known to me and some are only known to you, but we lift them all up to you this day. And so we, we think of Jim, who has been hospitalized, and we pray that you'd give him your peace. You know um, his mind has diminished and his strength over the years has um, lessened and yet his faith, Lord God, and his resting in you is stronger than ever. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are with him there and with Marcia and with the family and we pray your peace and your goodness upon him and all involved. We lift up Mikey and her recovery and her, um, and just pray that you give her a peace that passes all human understanding that all the things that she has gone through, Lord, after the surgery, um, well, that you just keep her in your care, you bless her, that she can rest in you and hear from you how much you love her. Lord God, we lift up to you our Thrive Support Dinner and the week um, afterwards, both online and in person. We just pray, Lord, you'd be glorified. And it's really not about us. It's about what you might be doing through us, how you can use us in this community and world. We pray, Lord, for our outreach ministries, such as the um, Thrive By Tomorrow, Lord, that you would bless everything that is brought together here, Lord, for your glory's sake, for the lives and the needs of many in our community who are hurting, especially through the pandemic and the times thereafter, Lord. For whatever we give, even you know, the least of, to the least of these brothers, we're really doing it for you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for that. Lord God, for our campus ministry, for our opportunities there, for the future that you have for us. For all of these things, Lord, we lift them to you this day. But more than anything, Lord, the one thing needful, we want you to meet us, to visit us in our homes, in our hearts, and in our lives, to speak to us, to teach us, to open our ears to you, our eyes to see you. And Lord, as we approach time where we will offer to you um, our first fruits, those things that you've given us, Lord, just in thanksgiving for all of your blessings, and a time where we will receive the Lord's Supper, what you instituted, Lord, the night you would be betrayed, Lord, that you would give yourself so completely and intimately to your disciples and to be with us always. 
Lord, we just pray that we would receive all that you have for us and that we would, Lord, be truly aligned to your will and ways. So bless our offering and our time of communion this day with you and with each other. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.